Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHUCA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, the NYC Podcast Network, and the Family Podcast Network. And we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia, and 16.50 a.m. in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at bhha.com. That's pcfpodcast at bhha.com. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Richard Santin, Professor Emeritus of Endocrinology and Metabolism at the University of Virginia for a conversation about his bustling retirement schedule and his use of his medical skills and technology to help patients in remote rural communities. Welcome to the program, Dr. Santin. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. As we noted, your medical expertise is in metabolism and endocrinology, which involves the treatment of diseases related to issues with hormones, the chemical messengers that travel between cells. From what I've read, your research focused primarily on the treatment of breast cancer and led to the development of aromatase inhibitors that are now the standard of care for hormone-dependent breast cancer. You've had a distinguished and decorated career. For example, you've been a recipient of the Susan Komen Brinker International Award. To get started, tell us a bit about yourself and your working life. Well, I did spend quite a long time in my career working on developing therapies for both breast and prostate cancer. My training is in reproductive endocrinology, so I'm an expert in areas that involve male hormone and female hormone. And as I was entering my career many years ago, I had a patient who was treated with prednisone, a medication, a steroid, for her breast cancer, and I thought there just had to be a better way. So we spent quite a long period of time developing the aromatase inhibitors as another way to treat breast cancer. And this is basically a drug that blocks the enzyme that converts male hormones to female hormones. And in women with breast cancer, then it will reduce the production of estrogen. So my career really has been seeing patients, doing research and teaching. And as my career has gone along, I've spent much more time taking care of patients with menopause and writing about the guidelines about how we should treat women with menopause. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And so you're now retired, but your post-professional days have kept you busy from what I gather. For several years now, you have leveraged the power of technology to conduct telemedicine consultations with patients in Southwest Virginia through a network of six federally qualified health centers, which exists to provide care to people without insurance and those of limited means, often serving folks in more remote communities. So you're meeting with patients remotely from your home base in Charlottesville. To do this, you had to factor in things like the limits of broadband access and cell phone service coverage in Southwest Virginia, among other technology considerations. If you would, tell us about that work and the initial problems solving it involved to get things underway. Sure. Well, as anyone else, one does retirement planning. And one of our fellows in training, Emma Eggleston, had gone down to Southwest Virginia for a health fair. And what she'd learned was that the patients there had no access to specialists and really didn't have a lot of access to primary care. That led me to think that perhaps during retirement, I could spend some time using my expertise helping these patients. So I began looking into this, and it turns out that there are a large number of patients with diabetes in Southwest Virginia. There basically are no endocrinology specialists there to take care of these patients, 
And in general, these patients are well below the average income for the state of Virginia, so they're really financially challenged. And they have difficulty with health insurance. Many of them are unemployed or have some sorts of disabilities. So that gave me the idea that I could take care of those patients by telemedicine. I had actually been doing telemedicine for about 30 years prior to this, so I knew the power of telemedicine. So the idea is that they refer patients to me. I spend about an hour doing a history and a physical exam on these patients with diabetes. The records that they send me about the patients give me laboratory data, the physical exam that has been done by the doctors there, and what their current status is. Now, the problem is how does one follow up with patients and call them frequently enough to get their blood sugars under control? So my wife and I drove down with two uh, cell phones, one that had Verizon on it and the the other one uh, had T-Mobile. And we tried to figure out what the uh, broadband coverage was in the areas where these patients lived. And it turned out that Verizon was the best, but it was very spotty. So one had to work around this, and we learned that there was a company called Telcare, which has a meter for patients to, to measure their glucose, but that meter stores their glucose level, and when they drive their vehicle close to a uh, internet cell tower, when they're driving to do shopping or whatever, it uploads it to the cloud and sends it to me. So this was a workaround that allowed us really to use the internet in an area that had very little internet. The other step with this, I found that if you talk to patients once a week and made changes in their treatment for diabetes, one could get their glucose levels lower much more rapidly by calling them once a week than if I would only see them about once every month or once every three months. So I ended up calling them every week. And this turned out to be very frustrating. I would call and the patient wouldn't answer the phone They didn't have voicemail, they wouldn't call me back, and I spent a long time trying to contact each of these patients. Well, that led to another workaround, and this has worked exceedingly well, and that is that we give the patients a 15-minute telephone call appointment each week. So it might be Thursday at 3.45 that they'd call me. In that way, the patient calls me, I have their record right available, and we can go over their blood sugars and make changes in their glucose levels. And this has worked really quite well. It's much more efficient. Well, the other thing I learned is that it's very difficult for patients to be compulsive enough to really take care of their diabetes well. So about 30% of the patients that I was referred really didn't have the motivation to follow up with me. And I could find that out because the patients didn't call me three times in a row. So I've been doing this for six years, and the average blood sugars in these patients have gone down quite dramatically. We've been able to publish this to try to convince others that this is something to do. And I have to say, this has been very rewarding. I sit in my office with the computer and evaluate patients, then I talk to them on the telephone. I get to know them quite well because they call me once a week. And I'm really using the expertise in treating diabetes that I've developed over 40 or 50 years of practice. And I'm really uh, helping patients, but at the same time enjoying my retirement. So that's kind of an overview of what I've been doing. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. A moment ago, we referenced federally funded community health centers. For those listening, can you share a bit more about these facilities, which are funded by Washington and play an important role in public health access for patients without insurance and the means to pay for care, like you mentioned? Please tell us about the role these health centers play in filling gaps in the delivery system. Right. So the federal government some years ago realized that they needed to fund programs for healthcare in underserved rural communities. They realized that there weren't the facilities in these areas, there wasn't the infrastructure, and there was a real need to spend some money to try to do this. So they spent currently about $6 billion funding 1,400 federally qualified community health centers around the US. And what these clinics do, they have a sliding scale so that if a patient can't afford anything, they get very much discounted medical care. So at the lowest end of the scale, they pay $3 for a prescription. They pay $10 for a complete new patient evaluation. And this is all funded by the government. I have found when I talk to my colleagues around the country, no one seems to have heard anything about this program. It seems to be the best kept secret that I know of And you really can think of it as equivalent to the government funding medical care, funding the Indian Health Service, funding Medicaid, and funding the um, military health care. This is an independent program funding uh, rural health care. So what I found is that the people that work in these clinics are highly motivated to take care of this population of patients. For instance, at the Tri-Area Community Health, federally funded, qualified community health center that I work with, there are actually 140 people hired to help take care of these patients. So they have nurse practitioners, they have physicians, psychiatrists, they have a laboratory, they do measurements of whether patients have osteoporosis, have a laboratory to draw bloods and so on. So this enables me, when I see the patients down there, to interact with the personnel in these clinics, and it really makes it possible to deliver pretty high-quality health care depending on them. Let me give you an example. I work with two individuals who are certified diabetes care specialists and educators. This is a special certification for nurses, and these two individuals will educate the patients about nutrition, about their diabetes. When I call these two individuals, they talk to the primary care physicians to order the medications that I want, to order the laboratory tests that I want. So this is really a team effort. I'm sitting doing this by telephone or telemedicine, but I've got a whole team of individuals that are hired basically by these federally qualified community health centers funded by the, uh, the federal government. So really, uh, this is a uh, system uh, that I've been working on for several years that I think many retired specialists, not just endocrinologists, could do. And one of my goals now over the next couple of years is to try to advertise what I'm doing and then try to encourage retired physicians to do just what I'm doing. Thank you, and that kind of ties into my next question. We know that labor challenges abound in the United States economy across industries, including healthcare. 
Here in Virginia, there are more than 11,000 job openings. During the pandemic, when workforce challenges were magnified, efforts were made to bring recently retired clinicians back into practice to support hospitalized patients. Like you said, I gather that you're encouraging other retired folks with clinical experience to consider using their talents to continue to serve patients. Given the state of the labor market and shortages of physicians, nurses, psychiatrists, and many other clinical support roles, do you have any thoughts about engaging retired healthcare professionals to address some of those challenges? Right. Let me give you a little bit of background about endocrinology, hormone doctors, which I know about. There was a workforce study done about eight years ago, and it showed that there was a huge gap in the number of endocrinologists available to take care of patients with diabetes. And we know as our population is gaining weight and developing more obesity, diabetes is increasing rapidly also. So this workforce gap of endocrinologists is getting worse and worse. Now, I have to tell you that medical practice is getting difficult and physicians are burning out. Why are they burning out? They're burning out because most hospitals mandate that a physician see a patient every 20 minutes for the entire day, use electronic medical records, have to read a number of directives that the hospital puts out, and follow a series of really quite rigid regulations. And doctors burn out, basically, because they're interested in taking care of patients, but not being a wheel or a cog in the wheel of of a uh, well-run hospital. So this idea of having a physician who's retired come back into practice allows that individual to use their wisdom as a practicing physician without all of the hassles that they had previously. They can work on their own time. They can talk to patients for as long as they want to. They can work through other personnel in doing a lot of the aspects that when they were in practice took a lot of time. That means not having to fill out forms, not having to write prescriptions and so on. So when you think about this, an excellent way to solve this workforce gap is to allow this group of retired physicians, this is a huge wealth of wisdom among individuals that have practiced for a long time, getting them to come back and see patients is really a way to solve some of this issue of a deficient number of of physicians to take care of patients. It's interesting that my college roommate was the president of the American College of Physicians, and we've been discussing what I've been doing, and he basically told me his opinion, and that is that any retired internal medicine doctor or primary care physician could do just what I'm doing, and the system of using telemedicine and other technology to do this is applicable to almost any kind of chronic illness. So if one looks at this, I think that the whole issue of getting retired physicians back into practice is a very useful solution. Now, what are the problems with this? There's an awful lot of technology involved. So one has to know how to use telemedicine. One has to use the internet and the cloud to look at blood sugar levels that the patients have done. One needs to know about the new continuous glucose monitoring techniques for patients. These are just some of the examples of the technologies. So I think for this to work, my sense is that one needs to develop the concept of a navigator. 
And the navigator helps the retired physician to get back into practice, helping with the malpractice insurance, helping with the telemedicine, helping with the technology, and some of the aspects that the retired physician is not particularly used to. And this navigator concept really works quite well. I've done this, and it saves me a good deal of frustration because the navigator can figure out some of these technology things that I'm not so good at that when I compare myself with my granddaughter who knows technology back and forth, I need some help with that. So thank you for sharing that, and thank you so much again for being with us today. Before we let you go, we do have a tradition on the Patients Come First podcast to ask our guests a pair of personal questions to give listeners a sense of who you are beyond the work you do. To keep things interesting, we have a list of 10 mystery questions, so please choose two numbers between 1 and 10, and I'll ask you the corresponding questions. Number 7. Number 7. You could choose one superpower to have or any one skill to instantly master. What would it be and why? That's an excellent question. I think that as a practicing physician, having a perfect memory would serve me very well in taking care of patients. So my superpower would be a perfect memory so that anything that I saw, any patient that I saw, any comments that I had heard or anything that I'd read, I would remember immediately and could use that then effectively when I practice medicine. Awesome. That's a great and very altruistic answer and very practical. Do you want to pick a second number as well? Uh, let's take number one. Number one. In the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would your last meal be? My last meal? Well, I would say that a good saying is that a day without wine is like a day without sunshine. <laughs> so my last meal would be built around the effective pairing of a Catrium Grand Cru Classe French wine, by that I mean the highest category of French wine, that would be a red wine, and I would pair it with the very best steak that I could have, and I would then hire a French chef to provide this meal for me and include in it a wonderful salad. Now, this is not a very practical question because on my last day, I'm probably not going to have the appetite to enjoy that, but the key is a good wine with a good meal. That is a really great answer. Thank you. And that will bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Richard Santon, for joining us today. So thank you. 